So I want to just say a word of welcome. Uh, and as we gather tonight, if you are um, here in person and you didn't get a name tag, this would be a great time um, to go and do that uh, right before we get started. Uh, also, a warm welcome to all of those who are joining us on the live stream. Uh, we are delighted to have you with us. And I want to, as always, uh, start with a word of prayer, and then we will say together our scripture verse. So let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for the gift of this time together tonight. We thank you for this wonderful and amazing book and for the wisdom that it contains that's deeply rooted in your word. We pray that you would bless our time together tonight, and that you would use it to strengthen us in walking in faith with you. For we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you'd please join me in saying our theme verse from 2 Timothy 4. And the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. There are many riches in that that we will unpack over the course of this class. So just a word for those of you who are new, there are several different ways to approach this class. The easiest way is to be on the beach. Think of yourself on a resort island where you're just lying in your chair in the cabana and someone is bringing you drinks and someone's fanning you with a fan and you're just totally relaxed and you're doing nothing. If that's what you want to do with class and just sort of get what you get through osmosis, that's great. I'm delighted to have you. Um, on the other hand, if you want to snorkel, you can go deep with certain topics. Um, each week you'll notice that I have handouts out there, and if we run out, um, copies of those handouts come in the email each week. Uh, and reading those handouts will really enrich you. Um, but if you're snorkeling, just read the ones that you think are interesting and ignore the other ones. Or if you're a scuba diver, you can go with me um, in the fullness of my nerdiness and go down the rabbit hole on everything that we're talking about. And uh, I would love to have you with me on that. Uh, but whatever level you're at is all good. Uh, the email list, if you are either here in person or online and you're not getting a weekly email um, please go to St. Philip's Church Charleston on the internet and send me a message uh, through email, and I will get you added to the list. That's an important thing for um, information about the class, and you'll get a summary and the handouts uh, each week coming in your email. Um, a couple of things about how to read this book. Please don't sit down and read this book in one sitting. It's really tempting to do that because at least I think it's really interesting. Um, but don't do that. Take it a chapter a week. And I also would encourage you to read out loud or maybe read out loud with a friend. Slow your pace down so you can be thoughtful as you read. 
And uh, today I have an announcement that those of you who are St. Philippians who read your uh, online eSpire already know about this, but we are happy to announce uh, Mere Anglicanism, which is an international theological conference held in Charleston uh, that has been on holiday because of the pandemic, uh, but we are bringing it back this year uh, with the theme, Telling a More Beautiful Story, Lessons from C.S. Lewis on Reaching a Fractured World. And one of the remarkable things about this is, as we were thinking about this conference, we tried to think of who are the greatest living Lewis scholars who would really have something to bring to the conversation on this topic. And then we thought about how many people we could manage to fit into the schedule, and we figured seven. So we invited seven of the top 10 living Lewis scholars to come, and they all said yes. This is absolutely amazing that all of these people are going to be in Charleston, South Carolina. Alistair McGrath is probably the top Anglican theologian in the world, written many books on Lewis, holds two chairs at Oxford University. Michael Ward wrote the book that was the commentary that we used in our last class that was called After Humanity. Uh, if you've seen any of the Hillsdale College classes on C.S. Lewis, he's the one that's on all of those. Uh, he's the one that discovered about the correlation between the medieval planets and the Narnia Chronicles. He is arguably the top Lewis scholar in the world right now, also at Oxford. Uh, Phil Riken, who is the president of Wheaton University, uh, Wheaton College, where the Wade Center, the greatest repository of information on Lewis and the Inklings. Simon Harabin, who has C.S. Lewis's old job at Maudlin College, uh, Oxford. Some of you will remember that there was a fabulous Tolkien exhibit a few years ago that was at the Bodleian in Oxford and then at the Morgan Library in New York. Um, Simon has been asked by the Bodleian to put together one of those on Lewis. Uh, he is actually writing a book right now on the topic he's speaking on uh, at the conference. Amy Orr Ewing is a brilliant speaker and scholar who is the head of the Oxford Center for Christian Apologetics. Um, Peter Kraft has written probably 30 or 40 books about Lewis. Uh, if you remember last time seeing that uh, book about C.S. Lewis as philosopher, uh, he was the major contributor to that book. Uh, he was the chair of the philosophy department at Boston College for years. Uh, Jerry Root uh, held, until just recently, the Billy Graham Chair of Evangelism at Wheaton College. He also has written numerous books on C.S. Lewis, incredible and engaging speaker. And then John Dixon uh, from Australia, some of you will remember from when he spoke at St. Philip's. He is the host of the Undeceptions podcast, which is known all over the world, and he is doing a uh, distinguished professorship for a number of years at Wheaton College right now. This conference is not to be missed. Uh, take vacation, do whatever you have to do. Um, you will never have people like this all on the same stage, probably in your lifetime. So um, we're very excited about it. St. Philip's is running this conference, so there'll be plenty of opportunities to help volunteer as well. So um, moving along, uh, we are going to listen to some music, if we can get this to work, and we'll see if it will play. Undeceptions. 
This is not King's College, Cambridge. So I don't know if you can hear that at all. Can you hear it at all? Does anybody know what this is yet? Yes? It is U2. Do you know which song? Uh, that, it's that album. Or we'll listen to a little bit more and some words will come along that will make you get the title. Yes, good. All right, so um, this is a U2 song called Walk On, and we're not going to listen to all of it right now. But the reason that this song is so interesting is that the lyrics are deeply related to the great divorce. And one of the interesting things about this uh, that you'll see in the scriptures that we're going to look at later tonight is that um, Walk On has a lot of similarities to some of the verses in 2 Corinthians. And there was an interview with Bono, the lead singer of U2, talking about the fact that he was reading 2 Corinthians when he wrote the song. Um, we also know Bono's a huge C.S. Lewis fan, and you will note that we are going to see some uh, things in the preface tonight about luggage and not being able to bring everything on a trip well, that's exactly what the lyrics of the song are about. And then the whole theme of the great divorce is being invited to walk on, to walk into the heavenly places. So uh, I can't help but believe that the great divorce helped inspire these lyrics. And that's just a reminder that Lewis is relevant, um, not just uh, to people that like English choral music, uh, but you too is by most measures the most popular band in the world of the past couple of decades. So, a quick review uh, from last week, and I will see if I can get the screen to come back. Look at that. Uh, we talked a little bit about who C.S. Lewis was. We talked about his journey from atheism to the Christian faith. We talked about his scholarly engagement. Uh, we talked about the fact that he was uh, really someone who was an evangelical atheist. And if it had not been for Tolkien and his boldness in sharing his faith, Lewis would probably never have become a Christian. Um, we also talked about why does the great divorce merit study today, um, the review of England in wartime, a little bit about the RAF, and then the front matter of the book. So I want to just rehearse again why the great divorce, I think, is so important today, not just generally, but right now in the cultural moment where we are. Um, the first thing is that there is this emphasis on eternal life in the book that includes a vivid description of the awfulness of hell and a vivid description of the glorious beauty of heaven that will fire your heart with longing. And one of the things that I think is uh, characteristic of our age is that we don't long for heaven in the way that we should. We don't appreciate the beauty that is offered to us 
in heaven. We don't understand or spend enough time with the scripture passages um, on that topic. And this book, through its imagery, helps us to do that in a way that is absolutely remarkable. The second thing is that, in case you hadn't checked in with the culture lately, um, narcissism and pride are at all-time record levels. And Lewis, in this book, shows the consequences of both of those. Also, truth, the very concept of truth, whether you can know anything at all, is under attack in our culture today in a way that has never been the case before. And the idea that you should speak your own truth, that you can make up your own truth, whatever reality you want to make up is truth, um, that has become sort of standard currency in conversation. And in this book, Lewis is showing decisively what happens when you hold on to what you believe is your own truth above what God's truth is and refuse to acknowledge that there is, in fact, truth with a capital T. You may also have noticed in our culture, and really worldwide in many countries, there is an obsession with rights today. Um, what we deserve, what we are owed just by the fact of existing. And it is not a culture that is friendly to the idea of self-sacrifice and servanthood. And this theme is woven all through the great divorce. Uh, another theme woven through the great divorce is this whole idea about choices matter. We just heard about this in the homily in church uh, tonight, if you were there, that the decisions that we make in this life are incredibly consequential. And Lewis is talking here all through the book about how this tendency that we want to have of saying we can have it all, that there's just a lot of gray. There's no real right or real wrong. There's just sort of how you feel about them. And Lewis is like, no, no, it's either or this or that. And this clarity uh, is all through this book. There also is in the book a brilliant uh, rebuttal of the whole idea of works righteousness, the idea that you can earn your way into God's favor. And Lewis completely dismantles that through the stories of the characters in this book. So England in wartime, uh, we talked about part of what gave birth to this book is being in this apocalyptic atmosphere where people really did think that it was like that REM song, it's the end of the world as we know it. Uh, and literally death is raining from the skies. Uh, if the picture comes back, yes, there we are. Central London during the Blitz. Uh, the BBC headquarters where Lewis would go to give live broadcasts while the bombs are falling on the building. He had to climb over sandbags to get in there to do it, and yet he continued week after week to do that. And Lewis's role in speaking with the RAF, you can see him uh, at the bottom there with a lot of the RAF chaplains, and Lewis felt such empathy for these young men who were going off very often to their death. And he felt great empathy for the chaplains who were trying to minister to them in this uh, really, really difficult situation. So he wanted to do something, and he was invited to speak, uh, but he was an utter failure. Uh, his first talk, he decided he was going to speak on Pauline soteriology. Probably not a great choice. Uh, and he talked about how people in the talk 
uh, as he looked around, even the chaplain that invited him was doing a crossword puzzle while he was speaking. Uh, and he said that when he wrote to a friend that the talk was a complete failure and his only comfort was the fact that God used an ass to convert the prophet. So um, Lewis learned from that initial failure and started sharing very vulnerably about some of his own struggles in life um, and the way that he was looked down on by a number of his colleagues at Oxford because of his Christian faith. So Lewis, uh, through this RAF ministry, was really leaning into the ultimate questions of life that come to your mind when you're a fighter pilot about to fly off and you're not sure whether you're going to come back. And all of England at this time had these ultimate questions on their hearts. So Lewis's work with that really informed his writing of The Great Divorce because it is about really what happens when you die. That's one of the main themes of it. So that uh, part is really important. We also talked last week about Lewis um, has an, what I would call an obsession with front matter in books. Never in a Lewis book just skip to the first chapter and start reading because he litters the front part of the books, whether it's the preface or the cover or the title page or the frontispiece or a little poem or a saying. He litters through the front of the book major clues about what's most important to him about what he's writing. So here, uh, the title of the book, The Great Divorce, Originally was called Who Goes Home, a new fantasy. Notice that word, fantasy. Um, the great divorce title we talked about comes from William Blake, uh, the 18th and early 19th century uh, polymath, brilliant, uh, thought by most people to be mad, uh, but had flashes of brilliance. Very strange theology, though. His theology was very messed up when he was a young man. It got a little better when he was older. Uh, there's a copy of Pilgrim's Progress on the book table that has some of Blake's illustrations. He was a genius. But he wrote this book, The Marriage of Heaven and Hell, trying to do exactly the opposite of what Lewis is doing in The Great Divorce, basically saying, there's some good stuff from hell. You know, we need to incorporate that. Hell's got some energy, some dynamism. And, you know, religion can be kind of boring. So let's bring in a little hell. It might liven things up a little bit. Um, and Lewis completely destroys that idea. But when you look at the frontispiece, you will see the title says, The Great Divorce, A Dream. And that's very important. And then right under that, he has a quotation from George MacDonald, who we talked about a little bit last week, that says, no, there is no escape. There is no heaven with a little of hell in it. No place to retain this or that of the devil in our hearts or in our pockets. Out Satan must go, every hair and feather. And that is really what this book is about, being utterly committed to Jesus Christ, leaving behind everything that holds you back. And MacDonald is going to be referenced multiple times, and he actually is going to walk onto the stage uh, and be a character in the story later on as we get into the book. Now, the other thing that's interesting is that when you study Lewis, you become aware that everything that he's working on during a time period affects everything that he's working on during that time period. So in this World War II period, 
he had an incredibly prolific writing and research time going on. And he had a lot of things going on that related to the devil and hell. He was invited to give some scholarly lectures um, at the University of North Wales on John Milton, particularly focusing on Paradise Lost. Now, how many of y'all have ever read Paradise Lost? Well, that's pretty good. If you haven't read it, I would encourage you to read it or at least read the Wikipedia summary uh, if you can't do anything else, just so you have an idea of what it's about. Uh, but it's a really important book looking at the fall of man. And Lewis loved Paradise Lost. The reason people study it at all today is that he and Tolkien, when they redid the English syllabus at Oxford, put Paradise Lost back in there. And because Americans love anything with a British accent, we just copied it lock, stock, and barrel. And people very often today are still reading it. But he wrote a wonderful book that's on the book table that's called A Preface to Paradise Lost. And even if you don't read Paradise Lost, read that. It's so good, and it will help you understand why this book is so important. But Lewis was also doing a deep dive into the Screwtape Letters, writing that during this time period. And then he and his really good friends, Charles Williams and Dorothy Sayers, Dorothy Sayers perhaps best known for the Lord Peter Whimsey detective novels, uh, but she was also a great theologian and one of the first women scholars to graduate from Oxford. The three of them developed a mutual obsession with Dante's divine comedy during this period. And Dante's divine comedy is deeply linked with the great divorce. So we're going to reference that from time to time. Um, Lewis, great divorce. Charles Williams wrote a book called The, Fig the Figure Beatrice. Beatrice is the uh, most beautiful woman in the world that Dante fell in love with and lost, but becomes his guide uh, spiritually uh, in the Divine Comedy. And Sayers goes on to do a translation of Dante that is actually still used in schools today. So um, there's a little book on the table also that is kind of fun to read. Some of you are familiar with Rod Dreher, who wrote a book called The Benedict Option, um, also wrote another book called Live Not By Lies. But his uh, first book uh, is called How Dante Saved My Life, which is perhaps not an evident title for most people. Uh, most people think about reading Italian poetry and snoozing. Uh, but it is actually a phenomenal book uh, that is sort of related to what we'll be doing in The Great Divorce. So what I want to do tonight is to work our way through the preface. If I don't get carried away, we might actually finish the preface tonight. I think it's six paragraphs. Um, we'll see if I can manage that much. Uh, but it's laden with stuff. So if you've got a book with you, uh, you might want to follow along. But if not, it will be on the screen. So I'm just going to read this, and then we're going to unpack it. Blake wrote, The Marriage of Heaven and Hell. If I have written of their divorce, this is not because I think myself a fit antagonist for so great a genius, nor even because I feel at all sure that I know what he meant. But in some sense or other, the attempt to make that marriage is perennial. The attempt is based on the belief that reality never presents us with an absolutely unavoidable either-or, that, granted skill and patience and above all time enough, some way of embracing both alternatives can always be found, that more development or adjustment or refinement 
will somehow turn evil into good without our being called on for a final and total rejection of anything we should like to retain. This belief I take to be a disastrous error. Note that, that's strong language. Disastrous error. You cannot take all luggage with you on all journeys. On one journey, even your right hand and your right eye may be among the things you have to leave behind. Gosh, that sounds like that UT song. Uh, we are not living in a world where all roads are radii of a circle and where all, if followed long enough, will therefore draw gradually nearer and finally meet at the center. Rather, in a world where every road, after a few miles, forks into two, and each of these into two again, and at each fork, you must make a decision. Even on the biological level, life is not like a pool, but like a tree. It does not move toward unity, but away from it. And the creatures grow further apart as they increase in perfection. Good, as it ripens, becomes continually more different, not only from evil, but from other good. I do not think that all who choose wrong roads perish, but their rescue consists in being put back on the right road. A wrong sum can be put right. That is, two plus two equals six. You can fix that. But only by going back till you find the error and working it afresh from that point, never by simply going on. Evil can be undone, but it cannot develop into good. Time does not heal it. The spell must be unwound bit by bit with backward mutters of dissevering power or else not. It is still either or. If we insist on keeping hell or even earth, we shall not see heaven. If we accept heaven, we shall not be able to retain even the smallest and most intimate souvenirs of hell. I believe to be sure that any man who reaches heaven will find that what he abandoned, even in plucking out his right eye, was precisely nothing. That the kernel of what he was really seeking, even in his most depraved wishes, will be there, beyond expectation, waiting for him in the high countries. In that sense, it will be true for those who have completed the journey and for no others to say that good is everything and heaven everywhere. But we, at the end of the road, must not try to anticipate that retrospective vision. If we do, we are likely to embrace the false and disastrous converse and fancy that everything good, everything is good, and everywhere is heaven, which is a myth that is rife in our culture today. But what you ask of earth, earth, I think, will not be found by anyone to be in the end a very distinct place. I think earth, if chosen instead of heaven, will turn out to have been all along only a region in hell. And earth, if put second to heaven, to have been from the beginning a part of heaven itself. And this is referencing Revelation 21. We'll get to all that later on. There are only two things more to be said about the small book. Firstly, I must acknowledge my debt to a writer whose name I've forgotten. That makes me feel so much better. He even admits in print he can't remember. And whom I read several years ago in a highly colored American magazine 
of what they call scientific fiction, which we call science fiction today, the unbendable and unbreakable quality of my heavenly matter was suggested to me by him, though he used the fancy for a different and most ingenious purpose. His hero traveled into the past and there, very properly, found raindrops that would pierce him like bullets and sandwiches that no strength could bite, because, of course, nothing in the past can be altered. I, with less originality, but I hope equal propriety, have transferred this to the eternal. If the writer of that story ever reads these lines, I hope he will accept my very grateful acknowledgement. The second thing is this, and this is really important. This will save you a ton of grief and confusion if you keep this in the back of your mind reading this book. The second thing is this. I beg, that's a strong language, I beg readers to remember that this is a fantasy. It has, of course, or I intended it to have, a moral. But the trans-mortal conditions are solely an imaginative supposal. They're not even a guess or a speculation at what may actually await us. The last thing I wish to arouse, the last thing I wish is to arouse factual curiosity about the details of the afterworld. C.S. Lewis, April 1945. Now, of course, even though Lewis says that, what a lot of people immediately want to do is try to read this book and immediately say, this means this about heaven, this means this, and that like there's a one-to-one -one allegory. And that is not what Lewis is doing. What he's trying to show us is about the journey that we're on in this life and the consequences of our choices. So I want to unpack some themes that are in this preface. And uh, we just read through that really quickly. Uh, I would encourage you when you read not to read as quickly as I just did because there's a lot of depth here and you don't want to miss things. Um, so the first theme, and I'm so sorry um, to tell you this in case you thought otherwise, you can't have it all. I'm so sorry. You may not want to come back after this. Uh, the theme song for this would be the Rolling Stones, you can't always get what you want. Uh, you can't have it all. Our culture tells us we can have it all. It's in commercials. It's in self-actualization courses. Uh, it is in spas. It is everywhere. Uh, but it's a lie. And Lewis says the attempt to marry heaven and hell is based on the belief that reality never presents us with an absolutely unavoidable either-or, that granted skill and patience and above all time enough, some way of embracing both alternatives can always be found, that mere development or adjustment or refinement will somehow turn evil into good without our being called on for a final and total rejection of anything we should like to retain. This belief I take to be a... Let's say that together. Disastrous error. All right, so this is really important. Um, a little rabbit trail for a minute. There's a book that recently came out in England that's called um, 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals. And when I was over in Cambridge, I was meeting with my friend Dan Hyde, who directs the music at King's College, and he told me that this book had changed his life, um, which that's a pretty strong recommendation. But one of the interesting things about this book 
is it really says a lot of the same things that Lewis is saying in this book, but without really a Christian context. And part of what he says, the guy that wrote it was one of those productivity gurus uh, back in the 80s who wrote about how like eek things out of every minute of your life and to not ever waste any time. And he basically says, I'm so sorry, I was totally wrong. And uh, he says, the problem that we have is because we live in this culture where there's so many things that are accessible to us that we want to have it all. And that old exercise about, uh, you might remember management school, they had an exercise about priorities where you have a big jar and you have big rocks and some sand, and what you're supposed to do is get it all in the jar, and the trick is you put the big rocks in first and then the sand makes its way around there. And what you're supposed to get from that is that if you set your priorities first, the rest of your life will take shape. And there's some truth to that, but what he says in 4,000 Weeks is that in the 21st century, we've got a mountain of big rocks that we're trying to put into this little glass jar, and the big rocks won't even fit, because we don't want to say, I can't do that, or that's too much. We want to have all of it. And the result is that we run around stressed out of our minds, full of anxiety, full of lack of purpose, all of those things. And Lewis is addressing the same, and you're going to see it over and over again in this book, you can't have it all. Two scriptures uh, that speak to what Lewis is talking about here. Woe to them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter, from Isaiah, and then from Romans. They know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, Yet they not only do them, but even applaud others who practice them. And we see this all over the place in our culture of things that used to be unthinkable that people wouldn't even talk about in public now being celebrated as if they are good things. And what Lewis is saying is you can't have it all personally or as a culture. You will fall apart if you try to do that. So the second theme, choices matter. And you may be called to renounce things on the journey. And again, you cannot take all luggage with you on all journeys. Now, I've been on trips where people tried to do that, and it is miserable. They will make themselves miserable, and if it's a group trip, they will make everybody else who's with them miserable when they brought 20 suitcases and everybody else just brought a roll-on. Uh, but sometimes that's what we want to do. We want to bring everything with us. And Lewis says, on one journey, the journey of following Christ, even your right hand and your right eye may be among the things you have to leave behind. And then he gives all these beautiful images about how choice doesn't converge, choice diverges, and that as we choose to follow Christ, we diverge more and more from the path of the world, and we get farther and farther away. It doesn't all come back together in some sort of kumbaya moment. That's just not the way that it works. And Lewis says that if we are truly seeking good, that we will find that that leads us to be more and more and more different from the world. Uh, a couple of scriptures, first from Philippians 3. Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider I've made it my own, but one thing, wow, one thing. How many of you do just one thing? One thing I do, 
Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I'm very tempted to preach a sermon, but I'm not going to. Um, Next verse, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And of course, Jesus is speaking in hyperbole here. He doesn't mean you're to actually tear out your right eye. We know that none of the disciples who were major sinners ever did that. But he's saying sin has to be taken very seriously and that you can't hold on to everything. There's some things that will destroy you if you insist on holding on to them. And then Paul, again in Philippians, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. Paul was from a wealthy family. He was classically educated at some of the best schools of that culture. He was a Roman citizen. He had all of the things that would make you uh, looked up to in that culture. And he says, I count all of that as rubbish compared to the surpassing worth and value of knowing Jesus. And then Jesus himself, Jesus summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. I just want to say, deny yourself is probably the most unlikely phrase you would ever hear in our culture today. We are told we should never deny ourselves anything. If we want it, we should get it and get it now. So third theme, repentance and a new start are prerequisites for the journey, and that is the journey of eternal life. I do not think that all who choose wrong roads perish, but their rescue consists in being put back on the right road. A wrong sum can be put right, but only by going back till you find the error and working it afresh from that point, never by simply going on. Now, I want to just say, I'm sorry if this sounds sexist, that sometimes men are not very good about asking for directions. And... There was a time when we were on a trip in North Carolina, and I think of myself as having a really good sense of direction. There was a time when we were on a trip in North Carolina, and that whole sort of area of Greensboro, Durham, uh, Wake Forest, Winston-Salem, I get sort of confused about where all of those are on the map. And so we got on the interstate, and we were going to Winston-Salem, And I noticed that as I looked at mileage markers, that they were going the wrong way. And we were actually getting farther away from Winston-Salem. And Jane very meekly said, are you sure you're going the right way? And I, of course, said, of course I'm going the right way. I've done this before. Well, I was not going the right way. And after about going 60 miles in the wrong direction, I realized that continuing to go in that direction would get me uh, eventually to the Outer Banks, uh, but that it was not going to get me to Winston-Salem. And the only way, it didn't matter how fast I went or what kind of car I was in, if I kept going in that direction, 
I was never going to get to Winston-Salem. The only thing to do was to eat crow, to say I was wrong, get off the road, turn around, and go back the other way. And that's exactly what Lewis is saying here, that you can't keep on going and think that you're going to end up in a different place. You've got to do an about-face. And that's exactly what repentance means. The Greek word is the same as the military command for about-face, where you're walking in one direction, you pivot, you turn around, and you walk in the other direction. And that, again, is a concept in our culture that we don't understand. Um, from 2 Corinthians, this again is what Bono was reading when he wrote that song, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. And then Galatians 2.20, this is a verse that really sums up so many things about the Christian life. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We don't like the idea of being crucified. If we're good Anglicans, we've been to enough Good Friday services and heard enough sermons to know how horrific crucifixion is. But it is the only thing that leads to the beauty of new life on Easter morning. And when we try to hold on to our lives hold on to ourselves, hold on to the things that we think are important that maybe we think God just didn't understand how cool that really is. And we want to hold on to that. Those are the things that stop us from being able to follow Jesus. And then this beautiful passage again from 2 Corinthians, Christ died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And this, the glory of that pervades this book. And you see it with these, the shining spirits, the people that are in heaven, how they just manifest this, not just with their words, but their being. And the more that we can get a hold of the truth of this statement, we will understand the amazing work that Jesus did on the cross to make this possible for us. And we won't want to hold on. If, you, if something died, why would you want to bring something dead with you it's like trailing a carcass around with you when you're trying to move into a beautiful new place. Fourth, anything we leave behind will pale in the face of what God has in store. I believe to be sure that any man who reaches heaven will find that what he abandoned, even in plucking out his right eye, was precisely nothing. The kernel of what he was really seeking, even in his most depraved wishes, will be there beyond expectation, waiting for him in the high countries. This is one of my favorite quotations in the preface because there's such deep truth in here. There's another Lewis quotation about, uh, he says, we are far too easily pleased. We are like children playing in a slum, making mud pies, fooling around with sex and drink and ambition because we don't understand what's meant by the offer of a holiday at the seashore. 
And if we understood fully the glory and beauty and wonder of what Christ has prepared in the new heaven and the new earth, we would be all about wanting to go after that and understanding that anything that we leave behind is nothing compared to what's in store for us. 1 Corinthians 2.9, I has not seen nor ear heard nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. And then Romans 8, I consider the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. And then Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. My friends, we are so impoverished in our view of heaven. We're so impoverished in our understanding of the joy that Christ wants to give us that we settle for those mud pies instead. And fifthly, this story is a fantasy and a supposal, not a factual description of the afterlife. I beg, there's that word, I beg readers to remember this as a fantasy. So don't get stuck on some of those things. Uh, from 1 John, dear friends, now we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And then 2 Corinthians again, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. God has made and prepared for us something that surpasses human language to express it. So I want to just close by looking at some of the words um, of this song, because I think they resonate with what Lewis is talking about here. And love is not the easy thing. The only baggage you can bring is all that you can't leave behind. You're packing a suitcase for a place none of us has been, a place that has to be believed to be seen. Walk on, walk on. What you've got, they can't deny it, can't sell it or buy it. Walk on, walk on. And I know it aches and your heart it breaks and you can only take so much walk on. Home, hard to know what it is if you've never had one. Home, I can't say where it is, but I know I'm going home. Leave it behind. You've got to leave it all behind. And I would encourage you to listen to this song with the words in front of you sometime because he's really saying a profound biblical truth here. We don't like the idea of leaving things behind. We want to have a big bag, and we want to bring it all with us. Anyone that's ever packed, like I just did, to be away in another country for four weeks and decided you were only going to take one carry-on bag, um, it's very hard to do that. But once you're there, you're so glad that that's all you brought uh, because then you're not having to heave it all over the place. But the principle here is that we don't need to bring anything and that everything that we try to hold on to does nothing but hold us back from the glory and the joy that God wants to give us. And this preface is just a little 
foretaste of the wonder that is in the chapters of this book, which I'm so excited to explore with you. Um, let's close by saying together what we just read. Um, if you get a hold of what this little quotation means, it will transform your life. Let's say this together. I believe to be sure that any man who reaches heaven will find that what he abandoned, even in plucking out his right eye, has not been lost, that the kernel of what he was really seeking, even in his most depraved wishes, will be there beyond expectation, waiting for him in the high countries. Let us pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the creator and author of all that is good, of all that is true, of all that is beautiful. Lord, we confess to you how easily we fall in love and are seduced by lesser things, things that are of this world that we want to hold on to and can't imagine sacrificing to enable us to freely follow after you with our whole heart. Lord, we pray that as we read this book, that you would fire our hearts with love for you, that you would fire our imaginations about the glory that you have prepared for us in the heavenly places, and that we would earnestly desire to be with you, to dwell in your courts, to sing your praise, to understand what it means to worship you with all that we are. Lord, I thank you for each person here tonight and each person listening live stream or on the podcast, and pray your blessing on them as we seek to follow after Jesus. We pray all of this in his name. Amen.